Officer down! I repeat, Officer down! Welcome back to 1033. This is your host, Nathan Kapler. A podcast created for a first responder by a first responder. If you are not a first responder, you still are welcome. This podcast is aimed directly at trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD is complex and often misunderstood. Our brave men and women who serve our communities often end up with behavioral and psychological issues as a result of experienced trauma from their careers. My goal is to share what I know, my personal experience with PTSD as a retired police officer, and continue to advocate for mental health while providing support to those still in their careers. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical help, and I strongly suggest if you are in fact suffering, you seek out professional medical advice. Please join me on this episode as I continue to expose the reality of PTSD challenges. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to 1033. Today we're joined by Phil Jacobson from Manitoba. Phil, I'm excited to have you on the show today. Phil has spent over 10 years serving his community as a paramedic. He recently retired last year as of August due to post-traumatic stress. Phil has an incredible story and I am truly, truly honored to have you with me today to share that story. Phil, welcome. Thank you so much, Nathan. Appreciate being here. Yeah. And again, like this is, I I know you from a mutual friend or through a mutual friend. And as soon as I heard your story, I was like, okay, this, we got to get this guy on the show. We got to get this guy on the show so he can tell his story. I'm so interested in hearing kind of what he went through uh, because the, the value of your, not only your experience, but your ability to reflect on kind of what PTSD did to you and how you're now healing from it. But everything that happened to you in that time as a paramedic, this is this episode I'm actually really excited about because it's going to definitely resonate with a lot of people. Uh, So do you want to take a quick moment to just kind of tell us kind of how your story began as a paramedic? Sure. Um, I I actually started out and did some fire training and got involved that way and then uh, looked at paramedicine as really a way to bolster my resume for that avenue. Um, but I found that I, I had a knack for it. I loved the training. I loved the schooling. And then when I got into the job, I absolutely loved the work. It didn't seem to matter what we were doing, whether it was just simple run-of-the-mill calls, you know, somebody stubbed their toe or something more serious. Um, I just loved having that capacity to help people out. So that's what drove me and, and kept me going and, and kept me in the industry for as long as, as I did. How would you describe yourself pre-paramedic uh, as far as, you know, your level of uh, behaviors, your patterns, uh, or the kind of emotional state uh, or your mood that you would have been in and on like a consistent daily basis? Oh, you know, pretty good mood most of the time. I felt like I was a pretty easygoing guy. I mean, everybody experiences their stresses, um, you know, and, and maybe a little bit of anxiety here and there. But um, for the most part, everything was just is what it is in in that time of my life you know something wrong went down then it it was what it was you know it was easy to move on from um i didn't find myself sitting and stewing on it for days or weeks or months on end uh it wasn't disruptive to my life and it didn't feel like it was out of hand by any means you just move on so yeah generally a pretty happy guy yeah it sounds like you were fairly stable 
and you were very resilient to stress and change and adversity. Uh, would you also describe yourself as someone who was very compassionate towards other and sympathetic and empathetic as well? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's why anybody, whether you're going into paramedicine or fire or police, any emergency service, it's because you have a want to help those around you. You, you have that empathy for your fellow man, woman, child, right? You just want to be there for them, you know, in their time of need, you know, and, and with being that resilient, you also do end up feeling like you can take on those roles and take on those calls and, and function in that capacity for them. Absolutely. I know I, t I totally have to agree with you in that uh, it takes a very special person to want to get into serving someone, uh, especially in that environment. So as you get into becoming now a paramedic in your community, uh, do you want to take a moment to kind of talk about the changes that you saw or the environment now that you are in? What were you noticing? Well, the big thing, I think, when you, you first get in, it's um, those first years, it's very much you keep your opinions to yourself. You're, you're learning the lay of the land. You're learning from those above you um, how it works, really. I mean, because there's a difference between your in-school portion of learning and then your hands-on. And then again, when you are the guy you're, or the gal, whoever it is, you're doing the job now. Um, so there's a lot to go over. So I found I was far more focused on those aspects of the job. There seemed to be, depending on who you were with, support. You know, you'd get the odd person that would ask, you know, how are you doing after that call if it was more serious or want to even just talk over it. Um, There's a lot more community um, or seemingly community at that time. Um, but as you, you continue through and over the years, you start noticing other aspects of the jobs. I mean, obviously, there's the politics and bureaucracies, but you start taking note of, of how others are treating themselves, treating their coworkers, uh, responding to their calls and, and the empathy or at times lack thereof towards their, their patients. Um, I found I was questioning that, but just, I always attributed it to, oh, he's just been doing it a long time. He's burnt out. Um, you know, maybe just needs a vacation, right? Um, you look to the simple fix because it seems like a simple problem. But yeah, like as that continues, and then again, you, you start to experience more and more of those traumatic calls and they start to change who you are and how you view what's around you and how you're responding to those things around you that's i think when the major shifts happened um and so after about five years that's where i was at and then um after the birth of my daughter actually uh that was a, a huge huge shift for me um because i found myself at that time prior to her really losing a lot of empathy uh losing a lot of sympathy for what i was dealing with it just felt like another thing I had to do at times. Um, and I, I, I know now that that was definitely a coping mechanism. If you're not, if you're not engaged in it and you're not engaged with that person, well then how can it bother you? Um, but that in itself is a, a glaring symptom in my opinion of the stresses and, and of PTSD. Um, after my daughter, that changed. I, I couldn't be shut off anymore. Um, I couldn't just not be empathetic. Um, and I, yeah, realizing now 
just how shut off I was um, was really scary having her because I started trying to act that way with her as well, which obviously is not good for your child. I want to take a quick moment just to back up here. You're you're lending into a very crucial part of your journey, and I experienced this as well when I became a father to a daughter as well. And you see kind of how emotional children are when they come into this world. There's no logic. It's all emotion. And then when they're thrust into the world where one of the parents is going through post-traumatic stress, someone who is suppressing and shut off, you quickly realize as a parent, and especially for myself, how quickly you need to to change your strategy so that you can actually be there for your child. Like it, it, it hits you hard in the face. Really, really did. Um, you know, cause all you want to do is be there for your child and uh, you, you want them obviously to take comfort in you and, and all those wonderful things and have those amazing moments. But when you're that shut off, it, it becomes uh, something very different. You know, they, they, will display a bit of a lack of trust because you're not responding in an empathetic way and they know that. So they don't respond to you in, in an empathetic or loving or nurturing or trusting way. And that's the biggest, biggest thing. Um, so my, my relationship with her is as well as I thought it was building in those first few years with her. Um, I found it, it wasn't uh, not nearly what I thought it was because those times that I was, happy and engaged and very present with her um, were fewer and farther between than I wanted to acknowledge. That's powerful stuff, Phil. And these are the hard things that we have to uh, we have to ask ourselves, where are we as a parent now? Because these are the little people in our lives that we care about most. Before we dive too far, I'm going to come back to this, absolutely, because this is a great topic, I think, for many people, especially parents with PTSD. I want to go back to uh, maybe one of the more serious traumatic calls, one of the ones that you kind of now can look at and talk about and kind of reflect on and kind of just tell us kind of what happened, what you noticed as you were going through the call, just to help paint a picture of what these calls can look like for us. Sure. Well, I mean, the uh, towards the end, one of the ones that the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, <clears throat> responding to a highway um, accident in BC. It was a car that had um, spun out on the highway, got T-boned at full highway speed. So, I mean, they're going about 100 kilometers an hour in one direction. The car in the other way is doing similar. So it's a 200 kilometer an hour impact. Um, now, the, the car that was affected, the heaviest that got sideswiped as they were spinning out, had three people involved and um, obviously not a great prognosis for two out of them. Uh, and the third one, um, was surviving at that time. And I think that's about the only way I can put it. Um, so trying to deal with and assess the other occupants of the vehicle and assess their injuries and, and wade through, for lack of a better way to put it, the mess that's inside that vehicle get access to the one that is viable, treat them, assess them, get them out of there and transporting and working rurally. That transport wasn't five minutes down the road, 10 minutes down the road to a hospital. That was a half an hour. We were dealing with this red critical patient. Um, and, and all that came with that with, with very little backup. Um, it was just us. And then we finally had a second unit show up that was able to help out for a little while. Um, and then we had to run 
that was it. That's what we had to do. So, um, and witnessing the carnage <laughs> inside the vehicle, unfortunately, um, that's something that has always stuck with me. Um, just what that kind of high impact of a vehicle can do. I experienced it to different degrees over the years, but for whatever reason, that one in particular, I think it was maybe the age of the the uh, the occupants. They were a little bit younger, um, sort of closer to you know our age as well. So that it brings a level of it hitting home in a, in a different way. Yeah, we see scenes in movies where we think car accidents look like one thing, right? And then when you go and experience this stuff in real life as a first responder, I mean, there's immense shock even there for you to have to walk into this scene and go, oh my Lord, what am I looking at? Like how I didn't even know that this happens in a car accident to this degree, right? Like these things are not captured well on movie. Like nothing can prepare you for seeing that. No, absolutely not. It's it's not even just the the primary impact of the vehicle as well. I think what what still shocked me and shocks me about that call and others in particular is that there's all the secondary impacts and tertiary impacts where it's, you know, you hit the vehicle, you're bouncing around the vehicle and anything else that's in the vehicle is also slamming into you, causing further and further injuries. And depending what those objects are, can do even more. Um, I, I don't know if... I'm allowed to be talking about this part of it, but for instance, they uh, they had a pair of hockey skates in the back seat, and that hockey skate took off part of their limbs. So it's you know again horrifying to see, but I guess maybe eye opening as well in terms of you know securing anything inside your vehicle. If I can do a little PSA on that. Yeah. And again, I mean, we don't have to go deep into detail because I mean, a lot of times it's just not necessary, right? Like we don't need to pass on the trauma, but you did even quite well there just to let people know that these are the realities of having objects in your car. Like they can cause severe, severe damage to you. I think, I can't even remember what the stat is, but I think if you're traveling over like, what is it? 120 kilometers an hour and you have a Kleenex, bo- Kleenex box in your car, that alone, if it hits you in the right part of your body can possibly kill you. I actually did not know that a Kleenex box could do that at that speed. That's something else. And I mean, I, I can't back that up with science. Like I actually don't know that, but I remember hearing that as a young kid, right? So we were always trying to make sure anything in the car was like, you know, locked down. Uh, and I've heard of so many stories uh, in my 37 years of different people being in accidents. I know one guy <clears throat> and personally know him. Uh, he was involved in a accident and he had a laptop that was in the car uh unsecured and he was actually fine as far as like the collision goes but what happened is after getting hit that laptop somehow you know moved around and hit him in the neck and actually paralyzed him so there's a potential that if the if that laptop wasn't in the car or was secured down he may have actually been okay a lot of people don't think like that right and even in your case too like having a hockey skate flying around in a car i mean that's that's going to do some damage now for you Having had seen this and facing some of the shock from that first initial scene and just everything you're going through, I'm sure a very common theme for you was to suppress all of the emotions that were trying to come up in that moment so that you can get through the call to get people, hopefully the help that they need to to get. At this point, were you finding it harder to suppress a lot of that emotion or that feeling of being overwhelmed going to these types of scenes? Responding to calls and then and reeling of the aftermath, for sure. Um, 
fortunately for myself, I always found that on the call, once we were there, um, training took over the little bits of adrenaline that were still <laughs> active in my body at that time, it would take over and, and it wasn't, you also didn't have as much time to think specifically about that side of it. You were just very focused on what needed to be done for that person to get them the help that they need more definitively. Um, but it was the, the responding to calls, um, because there's still so much unknown when you're responding, we get spotty dispatch information at times and you'll show up for one thing and it turns out to be completely different. So there's a lot of questions that go on through your mind. And of course that brings on a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. Um, and that's through no fault of dispatch. I mean, they can only go on the information that they have and they do a wonderful job as well. Um, but they can only do so much as well. So, uh, it was more the responding to, and then afterwards as well, once everything started sinking in and then those feelings would creep through and the, the stress and anxiety of what just happened. Um, I've, I found that my body would begin to crash. Narratives would start taking over in certain ways, questioning, um, making sure I'd done everything properly and as best as I could. And I, because of the stresses and anxieties of those questions, I would just feel hmm, maybe like I wasn't doing as best a job as I could, right? Because I didn't feel like those were feelings I was supposed to have. I always assumed as I experienced when I first started that you'd finish the call, you'd feel great about yourself because you helped somebody. But towards the end, that's not at all what happened. Everything just turned quite dark. Were you able to process any of these events afterwards? Like what kind of support was in place for you following a traumatic call like that? Well, my partner and I luckily had uh, and still have a, a really wonderful relationship. Um, she's turned into a, an absolutely amazing friend of mine. So we've we were always very good at being able to debrief ourselves after our calls, talk about them, you know, help build each other back up when we needed it to, and just be there for one another. Um, Cause I did find depending on who else was around, that kind of support was a bit spotty. Um, you'd, you'd get some that were wanting to help and would ask if you're okay. And then others just assumed that you would, or didn't want to know. Um, and in terms of, of receiving uh, critical incident stress debriefings, again, they were, they're spotty. I mean, it's, we go through so many of these calls in a year, um, the whole service, not just us, that those meetings would be happening multiple times a day to cover off the uh, traumas that we do witness. So I found when you were trying to access it, it, it was a little bit difficult at times. Um, if you were able to access it at all. Yeah. And what were you noticing around that time, Phil? Uh, what were you noticing around that time, Phil, in regards to like, what was, what was your employer promoting as far as the ability to tap into resources and support post call to help, uh, you process that trauma? Like were critical incident debriefs, something that were strongly promoted, uh, and just unfortunately not delivered on or, or what did that look like? What was the culture like around that time? It was definitely promoted well. Um, and depending on the manager that we had, some were very on it and would try to offer or even just like offer, um, 
uh, a simpler version where, you know, they would just come and chat or chat on the phone for a little bit if we needed it. Uh, there's definitely a lot of promoting of mental health and, and uh, critical incident stress debriefings. But in my experience, it's spotty whether you can access it or not. Um, it can be a little bit difficult that way. Uh, I remember one situation in particular, we had a run of very bad calls and they were just back to back to back and unrelenting. Um, I actually begged for a CISD, uh, the critical incident stress debriefings, ended up having to argue with several of my managers about it um, because they didn't they didn't believe that it needed to be rolled out every single time. Um, they believed that if you did it for you, you had to have absolutely everybody with you that was on that call, uh, you know, hauled in and it was a big ordeal. I mean, that's definitely part of it. It needs to be accessible to everyone that was on that call. But at the same time as well, when you have an employee sitting there saying, we need to do this and you, your response is to question them and say, well, are, are you fine? Well, nobody's going to say they're not because, again, we're still in this culture of stiff upper lip. So your natural response is, well, yeah, I'm fine, but it, it might be good to be able to talk about it a little bit. Well, they don't take it seriously at that point. So there is a failing in the system, but it can't be attributed to any one part of it. It's because of the whole. Yeah. And one of, even from my own perspective, I've come to learn and realize that it's not necessarily the people that are maybe telling you no in that moment or questioning you. Uh, they might have the right intentions. Unfortunately, they are creating something called sanctuary trauma, right? Where now you've been traumatized and you're looking to your employer for help and you're not getting that. So that actually makes the traumatic experience worse, which is an aspect of it. But there's all of these organizational pressures of, you know, not the right amount of people that are working, right? There's manpower issues. There's resourcing issues. There's all of these complex parts to it. And it, it does. It's not just one person's issue it's an actual like a, an organizational issue that I'm seeing across the board with police, with fire, with paramedics, uh, corrections, with the military. It's everywhere. It is. You know, and it, it, I find it, it almost takes a, a pretty extenuating circumstance to be able to pull it off almost, uh, to be able to receive it. And then furthermore, it takes the right manager to seemingly also also have to go way above and beyond to be able to provide that for you. Um, I, I'd have to say the most impactful one that I had was a little bit earlier on in the career, we had had just a terrible call um, involving a child and we actually didn't even have to ask that time in particular. That manager at that time came <laughs> driving from home um, because he had heard the call uh, on the radio put on his uniform, showed up at the hospital, sat us down, said, we're pulling you for a little bit. We're just going to talk. And he, he really ran it very well. And I was incredibly appreciative of that. But it took him having to stop his entire life that moment, you know, respond from not even being on shift or on work to show up to this hospital in the middle of the night to make sure we were okay. Like that's, that almost shouldn't have to be as extreme to get it done. You know, the team should be able to track and follow and, and implement this program, um, maybe a little bit more efficiently. 
What were some of the things that you noticed, Phil, when that uh, that individual sat you down and talked to you about what you had just experienced with that fatal involving a child? Like, what were some of the good things that they had done in that moment to help you process what you just experienced? Honestly, just showing up, um, just the fact that that manager took the time and drove from home to the hospital we were at without prompting or asking, that on its own was huge because I felt very supported. I felt like if I was having an issue or was going to have an issue, this is a this is an individual I can release that to. So there's a lot of comfortability in that. Um, and then furthermore, it wasn't ever questioned. He, uh, this individual, this manager didn't want to even go through the nitty gritty of the call. There was just concern for our well-being. And that was out front right from when he showed up um, to be there for us. It was just an overwhelming feel of support. Right. Yeah, the support is absolutely so important, right? I mean, it can go one of two ways right out of the gate when you go through something traumatic. You can either not get support, like you were saying before, where managers were questioning you on, are you okay? Mm -hmm. Or you can get the individual that takes the time to show up and says, hey, I'm here for you. Yes. Two totally different roads. Um, in the initial kind of transition of going from trauma now into processing, but that is so fundamental in you making sure that you can work through the emotions of what you just went through with that traumatic call. So did he also give you an opportunity to talk about the some of the harder emotions that were surfacing from that call or, or what did it look like beyond the support that he gave you to kind of help you kind of heal or at least start to process some of the things you saw? So in that moment, it was um, just him showing up and, and offering that support. Um, but he was very, very quick afterwards to set up a proper critical incident stress debriefing for us, which um, I believe happened within 24 hours of that call. And, and everybody was involved um, that was involved was invited and brought in as well. Some talked, some didn't, some just sat and drank their coffee. And that's fine too. But at least it was provided and implemented. Um, and then going through that process, yeah, we were able to rehash the call. Um, and because all of us were there, we were able to get everyone's perspectives. It was like bringing a lot of closure to a lot of things because at that call, we were actually the second unit in. So we didn't see the initial what was going on. We didn't, you know, witness how they had felt about it or, or first started dealing with it. So. Um, yeah, to be able to, to frame in the picture fully, I think was actually a, a really good thing because after that we were able to let it go. There were no more questions. So in, instead of, you know, going home and still thinking, oh, should I, could I, you know, whatever we knew we did everything. We knew that it was appropriate. We knew that we'd responded to the best of our abilities. The interesting thing too about this, and I don't cast blame on the people that were in that meeting with you, Phil, the ones that weren't able to talk, because that's very normal as well, right? There's there's a lot of reasons why people will not talk at a critical incident debrief. And we can't force people to talk. But if you are ever a part of one, please try to do as much talking as you can. Because like you said, Phil, it sounds like you did some talking. The talking is what helps us to get that stuff 
out, to get that emotion out, to start the processing, to get some of the trauma dealt with so that it doesn't become layers of the onion. So now all of a sudden, 10 years down the road, you've got to pull apart 400 layers of the onion to get to the core root issue. So I actually applaud you for being that person who did and was vulnerable and authentic in that moment and, and most likely did talk. I mean, that sounds like you handled things very, very well. And that's actually how things hopefully should go with most people in a critical incident debrief. Now, I never actually went through one as a Mountie in my 14 years of service yeah. and I seen enough stuff. So I was actually curious to hear kind of how one was run uh, successfully and what the impacts were. And I mean, you highlighted a very real and important part of the processing and healing part, which was to bring people together, to bring that support together and let you start talking and connecting about some of the hard things that took place during that call. So you're not just going home trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together in the dark alone. You really do and can benefit from healing with others. And I, I don't know if you picked up on that. That was a very crucial part of the critical incident debrief, but that's how they're designed. It's it's to bring that support in together to help you uh, to navigate through some of the complex things from trauma. Now, unfortunately, like you said too, that didn't always happen that way. So you still go on to experience all of this different trauma. Can we come back to, and sorry, there's a little bit of a lag here uh, through the internet and stuff. So it's kind of out of our control, but I mean, this is still a great conversation by all means. Can we shift back into now some of the things that you're noticing as a father and having that daughter with you and how you're now really starting to reflect and look in the mirror and go, okay, is this the husband and father that I want to be to my child? Well, that was actually the biggest question I, I had to really ask myself is, am I being that father? Am I being that husband that I picture myself being and what I want to be? Like, is that my reality? Um, and I, I feel now I, I am achieving that and attaining that i mean we talked a little bit of the lack of empathy before and it's things as simple as you know she would fall and skin her knee well i mean to somebody in emergency services the skin knee is no bother no nothing you kind of just say oh I'll brush it off and go away but to a child of two three four years old i mean that is one of the most traumatic things they've ever experienced that's huge for them and when they look at you they're looking to make sure that they're okay. They're looking for comfort. They're looking for that empathy. And if if you don't provide that for them, well, you're their safe haven. So what what is it you're teaching them by not doing that, right? So to be shut off to a child, your child, especially when they're looking to you for that comfort, it just sends the wrong message to them. Now, you learned this very important lesson through obviously going through it yourself and probably not doing things the right way initially, but you've learned to shift yourself into doing things differently for your children. And that's that's the beautiful part of the journey, right? Like we may make some, some mistakes as parents <clears throat> early on with our PTSD and as kids come into the picture, but for the most part, you can correct the ship. Now for you as a father who's noticing this very important angle, where is this now pushing you with your relationship with work? 
Well, I mean, the, the biggest thing for me, um, and I realized after um, going back, so uh, to, to rewind, sorry, I, I did, I, I call it a crash out. Um, I had to take a stress leave. I was off for uh, quite a few months uh, and then did a return to work for part time. Um, and it was it was in that part time role that I realized I just cannot do this job and be able to connect with my daughter because the only ways to cope that I knew at that time weren't the healthiest of ways. It was to shut down or it was to, you know, maybe cope with a, a substance or something like that if you felt like you needed to, um, which obviously isn't the best thing because you're you're removing a, a layer of your person when you're dealing with your child that way. Um, so it was in those moments that I realized it, it, if I'm ever still in that profession, I'll never be able to be the father that I want to be. Um, I just kept reverting to bad coping mechanisms, shutting down, lack of empathy, all those ones that you shouldn't be doing. So the big shift came from from leaving and then really focusing on who I want to be. The people around you too at the same time, like your wife or your family, were they starting to notice anything, Phil? Uh, absolutely. Uh, especially my wife. She's a very intuitive person, very, very empathetic. Um, and there were some, some moments for sure where things became far more black and white than they needed to be or more severe in my reaction than they needed to be because of those stress. Um, there, there came a point where I was so used to having control over the situation, having control over what was going on around me that, I mean, with a child, that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, children are children. So the reactions became more severe. Um, yeah, it just, it's... It, I was fearing that I was going to start traumatizing my daughter over some of those stress reactions. Um, I mean, something is inundating, like, sorry, um, minor as, you know, spilling milk, for instance, normally the average person would get, Oh no, that's, that's unfortunate. Or maybe they're a little upset, but if in that moment I didn't feel like I had time to deal with that, it would become far larger than it ever needed to be. Um, and I, I need to walk away. And of course my daughter would be upset and, you know, how is she supposed to connect with somebody that at the drop of a hat can fly off the handle in that way? That's the reality of PTSD, my friend. Mm -hmm. Everything becomes very, very difficult. We struggle in a lot of moments and there is no shame in that because that's what PTSD does to you. Absolutely. Yeah. It just, it really heightens those stress responses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot going on too in that moment. I mean, a lot of people are listening to this that maybe don't understand PTSD and they still might not grasp the concept of, well, how do you, how do you lose your mind in that moment of milk getting spilled? Like, I just don't understand. And for a lot of, a lot of people that may be listening to this, even in those, those moments feel like you're in a heightened state already of arousal uh, from so much stress over the years that you either were in a constant state of fight or flight throughout the day or you were on the cusp of being there so as soon as that milk gets spilled gets spilled over you automatically go into that fight or flight whether you're there or not you're now in it and it's now the world's biggest issue absolutely yeah it's um 
you know, somebody uh, explained it to me like a pendulum swing. I mean, most most pendulums swing kind of nicely, slowly to and fro. For mine, it just felt like it was going to the ends of extremes uh, constantly and extremely fast. And there was no moment for me to be able to interrupt that response and that feeling. I would just immediately feel like I needed to fight or I needed to run or whatever it was uh, at that time. Um, you know, like the, your heart rate would absolutely race. Your mind would absolutely race. Um, it's, it's just a very, very large pendulum. Yeah. And, and I'm sure too, I don't know if you can reflect on those moments, but I'm sure there was an adrenaline dump at the same time that was happening, right? Over spilled milk. Like that's how conditioned our bodies get to, uh, events now that could cause stress. Like it, the, the physiological and the biological things that happen within the body for something so simple, but after years of serving your community in these roles, everything just becomes really difficult. It does. Yeah. So for you now, now that you're kind of seeing, uh, seeing this part of yourself and you're, you're maybe having some of the, the family members or the very close support systems like your wife and your family, they might be starting to talk to you about it. You take some time to go on stress leave, which I strongly support. I think a lot of us need it. And I think a lot of us take it kind of too far down the road. When you went back to work, or actually I'll come back to that. What did you notice with yourself when you went on stress leave? Uh, well, initially, my because my body and my mind needed to recover so much. Um, when I first, first went off, I actually basically slept for about two and a half weeks. Um, so the, the event that took me into my stress leave actually was uh, in the middle of the night. I was on shift. We were responding to actually just coverage off in a different area. We weren't even responding to a call, but my body gave out. Um, I, I started getting nauseous, headachy. My body was spinning. My head was spinning. I felt like I was going to pass out. Um, I started having all kinds of bowel issues. So I actually ended up in the hospital that night um, and they, after blood work, basically discovered that I, I wasn't producing any of my feel-good hormones. My adrenaline was all over the place. Serotonin, dopamine just basically bottomed out and gone. So my body had been using and utilizing those hormones so much that it just stopped making them. So I was in this essentially state of depression without knowing what that was um and it, it was all because of those hormones so yeah for about two and a half weeks afterwards i just slept i couldn't do anything i didn't have much of an appetite i didn't have energy that was it i would get up in the morning i'd have a little bit of coffee with my wife i'd go back to bed i'd come up back upstairs i'd have a bit of lunch and and try to converse for a little while and then it'd be back to laying down and that's all i could do uh, once I got past that and my body started actually dealing with itself and, and I got on the right meds for my doctor after um, all that, um, it's like a cloud being lifted, a bit of a fog. And you can start to see, with help, obviously, uh, I mean, there was therapy going on at this time as well, um, but you can start to see what had happened and why it happened and, and where it's going to lead to. You know, I think you said it very well as well that, you know, stress leaves 
they actually kind of need to be promoted and they need to be accessible far earlier in the career in hopes that you'd be able to have a more long-standing career for when it happened for me at that time. I mean, we're eight years into my career at this point, eight and a half years in, and, and it was, it was too late. There was just so much trauma and damage, um, that there, there really wasn't coming back. Like I was underweight. It, it was just a mess. There's no shame either with falling into depression uh, as a man or a female. And the reason why and something that I learned in my own journey was that depression was finally the body saying you've had enough. I've given you enough warning signs over the years. You haven't been listening. Now we're going to go into a deep state of rest because you haven't listened to what I've been telling you, right? The body is a very powerful thing. And I went through this too, where I went off on stress leave and I actually ended up in bed for about four to six months. And it actually got to a point where I didn't have enough energy, or at least I didn't feel like I had any energy at all to even get to the bathroom. Yep. <laughs> Sounds pretty Like cool. that itself was a monumental feat. Yeah, it, it's a tough place to be in. And it's a weird place to be in because you know that that's not right. You know that that's not normal. You want it to fix, but at the same time, there is there's seemingly nothing you can do to do it. Because it comes back to, well, I've got to have energy and I've got to go and do this. It's like, well, I don't have the energy to simply do that. Like, I don't have the energy to even pour myself a, a bowl of cereal in the morning at that point. Yeah, and it's an incredibly hard place to be too. You're right. As a man who has been trained, and again, not just this isn't just uh, male or female specific, but someone that's in our environment that has learned to develop thick skin and push through so much adversity, now not being able to care for yourself in depression and having to have that support structure in place so that someone can pour you a bowl of cereal or whatever the case is, because like you said, you were ex extremely underweight the way out of depression is you just simply need to get that rest, that support, the proper nutrition and the hydration, but you do need some help. Like you, you haven't really been taking care of yourself for so long now. So the body's finally said enough is enough. Like we're putting you into a deep state of rest and that's it. So you now are being forced to deal with this. After that, uh, I want you to talk a little bit too about like what it was like to come out of depression and what that looked like. There, there, there's one moment in particular, actually, that I, I'll point to, and this was several, uh, well, probably a month and a half into it, thereabouts. Um, I've been taking my meds; they were finally kicking in, all those antidepressants and those kinds of things. And I remember waking up one day, and it just everything felt brighter. The sun felt brighter and warmer. The colors on the trees were greener. My mood was lifted. I, I felt euphoric for lack of a better way of putting it um because my body had maybe finally gotten that rest i mean that didn't last it it ebbs and flows but that was the first time and it was so impactful because that was the first time in, in a very long time not just since the crash but probably years prior to that i, I remember mentally feeling so good and seeing colors so vibrant and being wanting to be as engaged with the day as I've ever wanted to be. That's when I knew that things were turning. That's when I knew that I was on the right path. That's, that was the, that was the mark. It's amazing how dull colors get in depression. 
I went through the very same thing. I was out for a walk one day. I looked at some trees and the leaves were this this green that I hadn't seen in months. And I was like, this is interesting, <laughs> right? And you're kind of like, what's going on here? But again, a very normal stage in coming out of depression. You actually start to get out of the cloud, the fog, you know, the smells come back, the sights come back, and the body now is starting to become alive again. And a very normal process too in depression. So as you're coming out and you're starting to think about, okay, how do I go back to work? How do I, you know, do this longevity thing? Maybe your aim is getting to 20 or 30 years of service. Where, where was your mind at with, with that, that stage of recovery? At that stage, I, I still felt like I would go back and I, I really wanted to be able to run my career through to retirement. Um, and, and after feeling like that, that day, I felt like it was doable. I felt like, great, this is, this is me healed. Now I can go back. Um, but the problem with PTSD, the problem with depression and mental health is that it's so good because you have that removal, because you have support, because you've taken that time to rest. And I'm talking about support, not just, you know, your family, but if you have access to it and I highly recommend it for everybody is therapy. Um, those were huge moments and that, that made me feel like I was on top of things. Um, yeah, but it's it's after going back and doing half time, putting on an old pair of shoes. They they fit well. You go right back to running the same pace that you tried to before. And you know, I don't think at that time maybe I took into account how severe the PTSD was, how bad it would come back. Um, and I, I, yeah, that that's really where it comes down to. I mean, I, I know I was trying to take care of myself in a better way and 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 then that caused its own problems as well because my coping mechanism was to shut down my emotions. It was to shut down that empathy. Um and after the recovery and going back and and truly acknowledging how I wanted to be, that just wasn't feasible. So when that that coping mechanism is essentially stripped from you. I, I was left feeling quite lost because I didn't know how to cope anymore. I didn't know what that even looked like. All I knew was I needed to recover still. I still had work to do. And that was the area that I was focused on. So with that comes some coping mechanisms, but there's so many other layers to debride before you can even get to that, that uh, it may have just been a little too little too late for me. At what point did you know you were done and what did that look like to you, Phil? Um, when I went back and I, I was functioning at a, a halftime capacity, um, some of the signs of the PTSD and the stress were clearly there. Um, I wasn't acknowledging them as much. Um, my wife had definitely tried to warn me and remind me because again she's an amazing woman and intuitive as all heck but i wasn't listening and and the the point in which um we knew i was done is when i started losing control of myself again um and little things would turn into big things and i was heading out to a night shift one night and my wife asked me a very simple question and I don't even remember what it was, but I remember it being very harmless and it was just a simple question. And I felt 
for whatever reason, attacked. I felt very stressed by it. And I, I started yelling and arguing with her and picking fights with her for, for no reason. Um, but it was the stress of going back onto shift, going in for a night shift, because night shifts are just a different beast. Um, and all the anxiety that came along with that. And, and what I did is I, I took it out on my wife. I, I responded in that way. And I, I thank to God that I, I, it hadn't been my daughter. Um, because that's, that's not a good thing to do. That's not an appropriate response to a simple question. That was the moment for you. It sounds like, what was it like for you to finally walk through? And I'm sure, do you want to talk real quick too about the fear of having to leave with 10 years? Absolutely. There must have been immense fear there to step away. Tons. I mean, I mean, you're not just walking away from your pension and your benefits and all that. But at that time, I had gotten in when I was rather young. And it was the life that I had known. It was the life I had been training for and wanted since I was a teenager. So it felt like I was giving up. It felt like I was giving up on my dream. It felt like I was letting down my coworkers, my region, my communities that I was trying to help as much as I could. Um, it was a very strong internal dilemma whether or not I should even quit because as we kind of discussed it it feels like it takes a specific person with a specific drive to want to be in that industry um and and I was worried that I was leaving leaving maybe too soon maybe I could still push it through which I internally I knew I couldn't um but there's a lot of shame in it how much now looking back were you telling yourself uh, in regards to I can't leave, I don't have any skills, I don't have any transferable skills, I can't go anywhere else? Uh, some of those self-limiting beliefs, was that, was that also a part of some of the issue that you experienced as well, Phil, as you were approaching this, you know, do I leave? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you build your life around your career and, and what your income is, right? So, I mean, obviously there's the monetary and financial concerns with that um and then yeah you touched on a great spot too it's that skill set i mean these lines of work are so very specific that to transfer to something else is a daunting process you you start questioning well how much school can i go through i'm you know i'm in my 30s now can i go back to university can i withstand two to four years for a degree program or a certificate program you know, is, am I going to be good at anything else or, or even where are my interests at this point? You know, what even do I want to be doing? Um, and it's, it's an undertaking for sure, but it's, it's definitely very, very doable. There's lots of great support programs out there. Um, you, you just got to eventually bite the bullet and do it. If you're trying to improve yourself for yourself, for your family, and to have a, a life that you want to be living in a way that you want to be living. Nobody wants to be feeling as stressed as they do when they're going through PTSD. Um, it's, it's a beast to, to work through. It absolutely is. And there's so many complex layers of, of having to deal with the trauma, right? And now for you having to realize too that 
in order to heal, and I'm sure you hit this point too, in order to finally heal and deal with this PTSD, a lot of us finally get to a point where we know we're done and we have to make that step. Now there's fear and there's those limiting beliefs that come in like we just talked about. But for you, you actually did honor that and you said, okay, I'm going to commit to leaving despite the fact that I'm only 10 years in, which is very difficult to do because you have a family now, you have all of these different complex issues of, you know, how am I going to make sure that I can put bread on the table and have a wage and all of these different things, but you chose to leave. Do you have any regret about leaving? No, um, I actually don't anymore. I think I, I held some for a little while, um, mainly because I, I think I was stuck in those feelings of shame and guilt for, for longer than I should. I, I maybe even indulged in them a little bit, but the, the reality is that there was becoming a point where I felt like it was going to be either my career that gave out or my family that gave out. And the decision at that point is very, very simple for me anyways. And it was my family cannot give out that that is not something that I want to have happen. I can never let happen. Um, I mean, they're they're who I chose to have in my life. They chose me to have or me to have in their lives as well. I mean, that's incredibly important is your family. So it became, for lack of a better term, a no brainer at that point, when it's that extreme. And that was my experience as well, Phil, when I, when I was leaving the Mounties, a lot of people said, well, how can you do it right at 14 years or whatever with, uh, you know, you give up the pension a little bit and all these different things. But for me, it was very real. There was a moment where I was standing, uh, in my kitchen and I remember looking at some magazine and it had a quote from some military guy that said, you know, when it's time to hang up your hat because of the cost that will come if you don't. And it just hit me in that moment. And I was like, okay, uh, this is actually a lot easier of a decision than I had actually originally thought. Uh, so I'm actually quite proud of you, Phil, for taking that plunge and saying enough is enough. And what a what an incredibly moving moment for you in your journey to finally even step back and say, okay, you know what? Here's my self-worth. I need to now honor my self-worth and be there for my family so that I can be a healthy father. So what does, what does your life look like now, now that you have had left? Like, where are you, where are you going? Uh, and what, what's over, like, what, how is the recovery going now with PTSD? It's going really well. Um, I feel like I'm honestly living the life that I want to be living now. Um, I don't feel like I'm missing out on the things that my family are, are doing. I mean, before when you're on shift, they're very, very long shifts. I, I basically wouldn't see my family for the four days I was on because you're living a very different life. So now having my own business and doing what I'm doing, I'm able to get up and even make breakfast for my family and, and enjoy a little bit of it. And I come home at the end of the day and I can drop everything and, and engage with my, my kids and my daughter. Um, whereas before, you know, you, you carry a lot of the day with you after those kinds of days. Um, they're always running in the back of your mind, those narratives, those thoughts that called this call this person. Now I'm able to just drop my bags, come into the house and I'm, I'm home. I'm no longer Phil the paramedic. I am dad. 
And there's a difference in how my daughter even greets me at the door now because of this. She's excited when I come home. When I pull up in the, onto the driveway, she opens up the door and she screams at me and wants big hugs. That wasn't the case before. And it's because I'm able to actually engage with her, engage with her at her level. Um, and then... And, and, take part in the joy that she has. Bring me to tears, Phil. It's a beautiful thing for you as a man to get that from your daughter, to be able to push yourself in a direction where you now are a healthy father for her. And that is how we know when we're healthy is when these little people, they trust us and they come running to us instead of running away from us. Because as a first responder with PTSD, there is an impact to your children, 100%. You cannot avoid it. It is there. And you're highlighting a very real important part of the journey is just recognizing and having the awareness into what your PTSD looks like, not only for yourself, but for your loved ones that are in that home with you. And that was something I too had to ask myself that question, very hard question. What is the impact I'm having on my loved ones? And like you said, when you finally recognize that your your time is done and you need to step away to focus on yourself, to heal, and to deal with all of the things that you've seen and experienced, and there's no shame in that, stepping away early, I strongly support it, and I'm sure you do too. But you give these gifts to your children. You create that healthy environment. So I am so, so incredibly proud of you, Phil. Uh, Phil, what what is your business that you're doing right now? Uh, actually, I retrained as an, an arborist. Uh, so I have a little tree service company. I do pruning and removals. And I just, I love working with nature and just being outside. It brings a lot of peace. And that's, and that's the beauty of it, right? Like it doesn't have to be complicated, right? You don't have to go back to the drawing board. For you, for example, you've taken, you know, your skills and you've transferred into something very simple. You like being outside, working with your hands and, uh, and still providing a very necessary service to your community, just in a very different capacity. Phil, I, I know you have to run. Uh, we're hitting that hour mark anyway, but the the candidness that you brought to the table about your experience. I truly appreciate it. It is going to help people out there. Uh, We didn't even get a chance to talk about a lot of the things that we wanted to talk about, which would have been, you know, the childhood trauma or, you know, I usually like to bring in maybe a component of like, was suicide a part of your journey or suicidal ideation because the pain can get so real. Um, But I guess in closing, if you were to give a message of hope, to the people that are listening to your story today, what is that one message you would give them? Hmm. It just starts with recognizing what you're going through, recognizing and acknowledging what you're going through. Because once you start with that, then you can start the next parts of the process and what's right for you and right for your family. And it can be done. I mean, you you can retrain, you can move, you can shift. There will always be something else that you can do. Whether you feel like there is or there isn't, there is, I promise. Phil, you give so much hope for people to make that transition in life, not even just into the space of healing from post-traumatic stress, but getting into a space of possibly a career change and finding their self-worth and the post-traumatic growth. And I can tell right now that you definitely have grown a lot from your experience and I'm incredibly proud of you. I wanted to take this quick moment even to just to thank you for your service and your sacrifice and everything you've done in those 10 years for your community. 
it's definitely something to be proud of. And, uh, and I'm very honored to have you on the show today, Phil. Thank you for being here, Phil. Uh, I hope we have you a great day and we will definitely stay in touch, my friend. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. I really appreciate the time, Nathan. Uh, I really do hope and I do think that some people will get some great use out of this. Thank you for joining us on season two. If you are a first responder with an incredible story into post-traumatic stress, please reach out and connect with myself. Season two is based on your story. And if you want to step up to the plate and share your story with the world, I would be more than honored to help you do that. Thank you for your continued support with this project. And thank you for tuning in today.